Okay, well, welcome everybody. This, if you want to make sure you're in the right place, we're going to be talking about virologic failure. So if you don't want to hear about virologic failure, I won't feel bad at all if you get up and leave. Um, but this is the workshop for virologic failure. Just to briefly introduce myself, I'm David Spock. I'm at the University of Washington. I'm with the Mountain West AIDS Education Training Center. I've been doing HIV clinical care for about 25 years. And so what I'm going to try and do in the session today is go over what I think are some practical issues related to antiretroviral resistance that you may be seeing in your clinical practice on a day-to-day -day basis. I don't have any um, financial disclosures, uh, no pharma contact at all. There, there are really four major areas that I'd like to focus on. And, and let me just say in terms of the ground rules here, uh, anybody can ask a question. If, if, you, if I'm going over something and you don't understand it, just please raise your hand. You may be surprised, but there may be 10 other people in the room that have the same question and don't understand it as well, so don't feel bad if you ask a question. I will have a certain kind of pace of things we want to get through, um, and there are different kinds of workshops. There's workshops that I've done with five to seven people, and you truly can just sit around a round table and discuss cases and, and have completely informal. With a room this size and this number of people, I, I do have sort of a general agenda, but I want to make it interactive and let people ask questions as we're going along. Uh, there's a microphone there, and we're going to have microphones here, and because they're recording this, it would be great if you could wait for the microphone before you ask your question. I'm going to be asking you questions. This is a bunch of cases, but the four areas that we're going to try and hit are practical issues related to nuke resistance, NRTI resistance, non-nucleoside resistance, integrase resistance, and then very briefly, if we have time at the end, I don't want to have to get to this, but if we can get to entry inhibitor resistance so people can just understand the basics about trying to do um, screening to see whether or not Maraviroc is a valid drug to be able to use and what happens if you're on Maraviroc and you fail therapy. If we have time, we'll get to that, but I know that that's not as often used in clinical practice. There are probably a lot of people in the room that have a lot of expertise. So in addition, I, I don't have the cornerstone or the market on what's knowledgeable about drug resistance. So certainly for those of you that are really knowledgeable, feel free to chime in and make an important point, especially if I left something out or if you disagree with what I said. Um, let me just ask you a question to begin with. Look at this chart. This is a patient we started on antiretroviral therapy. They've been on it for a while. And we're just basically showing a nice initial virologic response here that you can see. And then you see a sort of flattened, suppressed virus below, uh, in this case, is 50 copies, which is just what we want to see. And then you see the one uh, viral load that's up there. So anybody want to tell me, what would you call that? A blip. Call it a blip. So who wants me to tell me, raise your hand if you want to say, what are we, what are we going to do about this now? What are we going to do about this? What's that? Also, certainly you want to ask if somebody's missed doses of their meds, Great. whether there's an adherence issue, but some people just get blips from some transient release of viremia from uh, reservoirs. Absolutely. That's perfect. That's exactly the point that I wanted to make, is that if you see a, a one isolated increase in a viral load, that is not considered a virologic failure. But without that second follow-up viral load, you don't know if it's a blip or if the person is on their way to failure. So if you have a person in your clinic and you see that they have, for the first time in a long time, suddenly a viral load that's gone up, you shouldn't be thinking, I'll see them back in six months. Anytime you see an initial blip like that, that should trigger a very rapid follow-up visit three to four weeks later, maybe even sooner, asking about adherence. But 
Uh, also, we just see people who have this, these transient blips and, and they're, they're absolutely fine in the long run. Yes. And if we can make, we, sorry, we got, we're going to work the microphone around to you. How about over here, because he's closer to you. Blips have suddenly gotten more complicated now that we're using a standard yes. of under 20 copies. What do we do when we get a detectable, but they don't give us a number, and it's not under right. 20, but it's somewhere between 20 and 80, and I don't think anybody knows what to do. Exactly. So he's asking the question about really there's, there's this isolated viral blip, but then there's this sort of persistent low-level viremia, and let me come back to that in one second, okay? So I promise I will come back to that. I want to ask a second question, and it'll get back to yours. So um, this is a blip, just as you all said. Now, and, and I'll come back to this, because the question is, in the antiretroviral guidelines now, in 2006, how, how do we define virologic failure? Who wants to raise your hand and take a shot at that? What's virologic failure? Donna, yeah, go ahead. More than 200. More than 200. So years ago, for many of us who have been practicing for a long time, we would previously think of virologic failure initially maybe 1,500. But now the, the DHHS has made this definition in the newest guidelines that failure is anything that's above 200. So back to your question or your point you're making, so we nowadays with, with more sophisticated assays, we have people in this range from 20 to 200 that we frequently don't know what to do with in clinical practice. And one of the things that I'm involved with at our area AIDS Education Training Center is an outreach program where we have these echo sessions where we talk to a lot of medical providers and hear their cases around the region. This comes up over and over again. Somebody has a person with a viral load, goes up to 60, it goes up to 80, what do you do? And you are exactly right in that we truly do not know what the right answer to do. If you go out and you look at the literature on this, you can see articles that say we should basically be taking everybody with a viral load of 80 to 100 and changing their regimen. You'll see other people that say the long-term outcome in these individuals is as long as they remain sort of in the under 100 range that most of these people do fine. Um, so there's a wide range. My own opinion is this. Anybody in that detectable but not quantifiable, has everybody seen this on a lab report? You get it back and you go, well, what does this mean? And they go, my, my patient's viral load is, is below, you know, it's, it's, they're not seeing it, but they can't quantitate it. So it, in, previously we didn't have this. So basically that means that their virus is down to a level that's very low, but it's low enough that they can't actually do the quantification for it. So typically that's often between sort of 20 to 50 copies. When people get below 10 to 15 copies in that range, that's truly they can't detect any virus at all. Someday we may be saying that that's where we're going to try and get everybody is under 20. But right now I think most people, and somebody in the room may disagree with this, but when we see virus that is between 20 and 50, most people are not changing therapy based on that. If I see somebody between 50 and 100, I'm very concerned and nervous about that, and I tend to follow those people very closely. My own opinion is if they tend to go up um, and start marching towards 100, I will often make a change then. But let me turn it back to you. What would you do? I mean, just anybody in the room want to take a shot? Let's say that I give you that scenario. Their viral load is, quote, you know, below the limit of detection, but not quantifiable. Um, and so it's like we're assuming it's around 30 copies. They come in or visit at 60. The next visit, it's 80. Anybody want to just say what would you do in that? This comes up all the time. Anybody want to take a shot at that? 
Okay, so Donna's bringing the, the, the point up that, go ahead, you want to say that again with the microphone. The genotype archive. So this is a situation where I think a lot of people are turning to looking at can you do an archive genotype at that point. So before I launch into the, the actual cases here, this is, is a really nice introductory discussion for those of you who do this in clinical practice regularly, you know that genotypes don't always work down at lower viral loads. So above 1,000, most labs are very reliably going to give you a, a, a good, accurate genotype. When you get between 500 and 1,000, most labs now are actually pretty good. And I, I actually think if you get a viral load and it comes back 600, that is very worth doing a standard, at least attempting a standard genotype on. Once you get below 500, it's a bit of a house of cards, especially if you're down around 200. And what Donna's bringing up is now there are archived um, DNA viral load tests, I mean, a resistance tests that, that really they'll, you, in any level of virus, even undetectable, they're, they're actually amplifying pro-virus, so you can do that this day and age. The and we heard a lot of discussion about that in the panel yesterday. The clinical outcomes and, and what we know about that is still pretty controversial, but in our clinical practice now, that's what most people are recommending with these really low viral loads. If you can't get a standard genotype, in that situation, doing an archive uh, DNA viral uh, genotype is the way to go. Okay, so that's a really good introductory discussion. I don't know, do you want to make any more comments about what? Okay, but that, that's great. Yes, and you had a comment too. Thank you. Hold on one second, he's going to get the mic for you. Or you, yes, great. Thank you. All these tests are really pretty expensive. And I found that most people who I'm following who have a blip between 20 and 80, yeah. you know, I mean, you know, I would um, assess their adherence. But I, before going to the archives, I would just repeat it in about a month. Yeah. Before going to archives, because, it, and, and most of them just go right back down to being undetectable or zero. Great. So I would, so he's making the point that if you saw one isolated, and I actually would agree with you that if you saw one that was up at, say, 60, 80 copies, it, as I say it at the beginning, my, I would do exactly the same thing. I would repeat a viral load in a month. Um, I may have been going over that a little bit fast. The scenario I presented as somebody who has two to three sequentially going up, that would be the situation that I would be worried at. But that's a very good point. That, and, and back to that key point, one isolated viral load should not, in that situation, a viral load of 70 or 80. I agree 100% in that situation. Ask about adherence. Reassess the viral load in three to four weeks. And then if you're going up even further, that's when I think you need to be thinking more about uh, issues that are coming along the lines possible resistance. Okay, so a couple very brief principles and then we'll go into some cases with the different classes. So first of all, and, and I think everyone in this room is probably really good at this, and that is when somebody does have virologic failure and for the purposes of argument we'll say clear-cut failure with the viral load greater than 200, definitely try and figure out what the cause is. It's not always adherence, often it is. It could be drug-drug interactions, it could be absorption issues, it could be something else. Um, but anyway, try and figure out if, if you can get the cause of the virologic failure. And then again, it is ideal to try and get the resistance testing while the person is taking the meds. I'm not saying that if they stopped, it's worthless, but it's the most valuable information you're going to get is why you have selective drug pressure from the meds they're taking. Um, how many people in the room have used the Stanford resistance database? Um, Oh, that's great. That's really great. I, I just use it all the time, and I've gotten so that it's just a default. Every time, anybody who says they remember every single, 
you know, mutation and knows everything. It's almost impossible unless you have a photographic memory. The Stanford database is even better. It tells you, then it interprets it, and you can just put a whole different, you can even look at a scenario if another mutation develops, you can plug that in and see. So I, I strongly, strongly encourage that anybody who's using that to continue using that. And the last point is, if you're not really feeling like you're an expert, this is where places like the National Clinical Consultation Center, your AIDS education training centers and other places, experts in your areas, if you have a complex resistance pattern that, that you're not sure what to do with. Okay, so, and you want what is that? Here's one concept that I want to try and give you today that maybe some of you have never thought about it this way. But this is the way that I think it's really helpful to think about drug resistance mutations. So I think about drug resistance mutations as two major types. There's the mutation that's like a light switch that's on or off. Mutation there, you're done. Then there are the dimmer classes and the dimmer mutations where what you really need is a sequence of mutations that develop before you lose the drug. Anybody want to give me an example of a light switch mutation that they could think of? 184, K103N. Perfect. That's exactly right. I think you, know, you get a K103N mutation, you don't need to sit around six months and watch the dimmer go down. You're done. Fabrins is not going to work anymore. That's a light switch that's on or off. However, when you have darunavir-associated mutations, lopenavir, ritonavir, the protease inhibitors in general, they are much more like a light switch where you don't get one mutation and your drug class is gone or your drug is gone. So conceptually, a lot of people don't step back and think about that, but that has implications. For example, once you develop a favorins, you know, K a K103 on a favorins, there's, there's really no benefit of staying on the drug at all. Um, and, and we'll come back to 3TC and the 184, but protease inhibitors often can still maintain some value with one, two, or sometimes even three mutations when you're cobbling together a good salvage regimen. That came up in the panel. Does everybody remember that yesterday? That came up. They were talking about darunavir. There are a handful of mutations, and Joe Aaron was making the point. You know, darunavir still may be adding something um, with several mutations on board. So think about this when you're, you're looking at your mutations and, and in the mutation charts. The, the other one that's more like a dimmer are the thymidine analog mutations, and, and I'll come back to that in a second. Okay, so let's look at this. Now, conceptually, I'm going to show some visuals that look a little bit like this. Um, I'm a very visual person, and, and hopefully that when you walk away from this, that maybe you'll think about things just a, a little bit different from a visual standpoint as well, too. But when, when I'm thinking about the nukes, um, you know, and what the impact of a mutation is, I think it's really useful to think about the whole class. And you get that when you look at it in, this, in the Stanford resistance database. And I actually think it would be really helpful if, if the Stanford database had a little visual because sometimes it's just easier to see it and see what the impact is. So I'll be showing you some of these. And if you get mutations and they have a big impact, it's going to move all the drugs to the left, to the, to the high-level resistance. Sometimes you can have drugs that actually move to the right. Um, and, and we'll talk about that. So th this is conceptually how I think some people really start to be able to understand resistance mutations a little bit better. Here's a case. Okay, 36-year-old woman develops virologic failure while taking tenofovir DF, so not TAF, but tenofovir DF, emtricitabine plus ritonavir plus atazanavir. So boosted PI, TDF, FTC. A recent viral uh, HIV RNA level were 368 and 1,082 copies. So in the definitions we've used, that's two viral loads that clearly demonstrate virologic failure. A baseline uh, resistance mutation showed, uh, genotype showed no mutations, 
But here, the genotype ordered has one mutation that's seen. It's an M184I mutation. Who wants to take that on? So what do you do with an M184I? What are you used to seeing? V, M184V. What do you do with an M184I? Anybody know this? Thank you. That's exactly right. So it's similar. Now, here's the deal. So I, this is actually really, I wanted to bring this up because this will come up over and over again if you are actually using, does anybody know what non-nuke is, you will often see this M184I pop up with? Ropivirine. That's excellent. That is exactly right. So if you are using ropivirine in your practice, it's really good to know about the M184I. And even if you're not, it's really good to know that essentially it has the same impact as the 184V. And actually, um, what, what it is in terms of the mutation is it's a precursor to the 184V. So it's just a stepping stone, and it has basically the same impact. So sometimes you catch this in a person with early virologic failure. You may see the 184I, and some people look at it and go, oh, that's not the 184V. I don't need to worry about it. That is the wrong conclusion to come to. So one thing to take away from this, if you ever see a 184i, think about it just like the 184v, except the one difference is it's even worse than the 184v if you have uh, ropivirine resistance and have a 138k. I'll come back to that. So this is actually interesting that across the drugs, it actually, even though it's a nucleoside reverse transcriptase mutation, it actually worsens ropivirine susceptibility as well, too, which is kind of interesting that you've got this affecting a drug in another class, okay? So that's the M184I. Now, so Joe Aaron, who gave the, the talk today, had this wonderful study in the New England Journal that I'm only grabbing a snapshot from, and one of the things that he did years ago when they looked at AZT plus 3TC and published this in the New England Journal is that one arm in the study was a lamivudine monotherapy, Okay? So look at this curve. This is a, these are patients taking 3TC or lamivudine by itself. So you can see that week, week or two goes by, great virologic response. You can see another week or two goes by, not so good. But notice also, they follow this curve out to 52 weeks. 52 weeks. And that did not come back to baseline. The viral load is still about 0.4 to 0.5 log reduction. He mentioned that in passing really quickly in one of his responses yesterday. And I thought, ah, I'm going to circle back around and show this because this is a point that he was making. Anybody know why that still happens? Yes. Hold on a second. Let me get the microphone. What's it? Decreases the viral fitness. Thank you. That's exactly right. So the lamivudine 184 mutation can have a negative impact on the virus. And that's another point that I want to make is not all mutations are equal opportunity mutations. Some of them have really no impact on viral fitness. Others have a significant impact on viral fitness. For example, the K103N mutation doesn't appear to affect a lot with viral fitness. Whereas the 184 mutation, which is very common, 184V mutation, very common. Most common mutation we probably see in clinical practice. But it, it, that one actually impairs the virus. So the virus has a good reason to get rid of it or to basically overgrow it with wild type if you take away 3TC. So if you think about your patients who you do initial screening 
with genotypes on the first time they come into the clinic or they're newly infected with HIV. The mutation you're the most likely to see is what? 103. Because the virus doesn't need to, to deal with that because it's not impeding fitness. So when you're screening people who newly infected or they're new to your practice and they've never been treated, you're doing a genotype and a lot of what we're looking for, we're trying to find is our NNRTI mutations because those tend not to cause a big impact on viral fitness. The 3TC mutation, the 184, often is quickly overgrown by wild type. So my point with that is when you're doing initial screening genotypes and you don't see a 184, you can't assume that person never had a 184. If you see a K103N, in fact, they probably did have a 184. It's just the virus has such a quick um, overgrowth of the, of the 184 in the absence of pressure. Okay, so here's what the 184V or I does. So notice what happened here. You definitely get high-level resistance to lamivudine or or emtricitabine. And everybody, I think, is familiar with that. Emtricitabine and lamivudine essentially interchangeable in terms of resistance. But you still have an effect on the virus because the virus is now compromised from a fitness standpoint. So resistance is high, but there's an impact on the virus. But notice what shifted to the right there. So notice that tenofovir, zidovudine, and stavudine actually have increased activity. And again, that was mentioned very briefly yesterday that some people really like to keep the 184 going for two reasons. Number one, it impairs the virus's fitness. And number two, if you have this day and age, it's going to be tenofovir on board, not stavudine or, or, or zidovudine, you actually increase the activity of tenofovir. So when you see patients and they have a 184 mutation, and you put them on tenofovir emtricitabine or TAF uh, emtricitabine, you're not getting full activity from both of those drugs, but you're actually getting something that's pretty decent from those two drugs with the 184 on board. Okay? That's, that's a, a really important concept when you talk about resistance and salvage. Yes? So in this situation, is TDF more appropriate than TAF? Or so, it doesn't really matter? Nice question. So we don't know. Um, it appears that the relative activity of TAF and TDF are very similar once the 184 develops. So we think they're the same. There's one mutation which I'm not going to go over today. I'll actually just toss out and ask him by in the room. So there's another nucleoside resistance mutation called a K65R mutation. What's theoretically the drug of choice with a K65R mutation? No. Well, tenofovir or if you're going to really use a more toxic drug and you didn't have to worry about side effects, what would it probably be? AZT, that's right. So AZT, theoretically, at least in vitro is the most active. What we end up using, because we just don't want to use AZT, is tenofovir remains partial active. But back to your question, there are a couple of people that have discussed that with the K65R mutation, there's some belief that, that TAF may have a little more activity against the K65R. Paul Sachs was talking to our group about this the other day, and we, we circled back around and asked him about this again. He said, you know, we, we've talked a lot about it, but no one has actually shown the data that backs that up. So look out for that coming down the road. But right now we think the effect with TAF and regular tenofovir with a 184 or K65R probably pretty similar. Okay? Thanks for that question. All right, so now... Moving on then, uh, I do want to show those of you who aren't used to looking at the Stanford database that re really kind of what you get, which is really nice. And essentially what I just showed you in that visual is exactly what you see here. 
A negative number on the Stanford Resistance Database means that the drug is hypersusceptible. Um, the higher you go up in the number, the more resistance than the positive. So, for example, if you're up around 60, this is a 184 plugged into Stanford. And, and I just isolated out the nukes on this. 184V, and what do you get with that? Um, 184V or I. Either one you put in, you get these. So, again, you can see with 3TC, you get a high score of 60. And then the other point that I should have made better in the visual that I didn't is that notice that with 184, you lose a little bit of an effect of a bacavir. Does anybody remember Joe Aaron making that point about the choices of the nukes for salvage? He said, look, he said, a bacavir in 3TC is the wrong answer if you have a 184V on board. So see the difference? See why a bacavir in 3TC is much worse choice than tenofovir and emtricitabine. Does everybody see that with the 184 on board? Now, you may go, well, this is, you know, really basic stuff, but honestly, this is such a common issue in clinical practice, the 184, and what you use as part of your salvage. This is the backbone of what you're doing, so you want to get it right. And again, he made that point yesterday in the panel, and I'm underscoring that and making sure everybody walks away. With the 184, you have such an advantage of, of tenofovir over abacavir in that situation. No resistance, that's, that's different. But there's different, different issues there. Okay, so that's what the Stanford resistance data numbers look like. Okay, here's a different question. 49-year-old man presents with a new patient to the clinic after uh, recently moving. And I think everybody's had this scenario where you, you actually inherit somebody where there's a lot of history and you don't have it all. He has a long history of taking antiretroviral therapy beginning in the early 1990s. He's been off antiretroviral therapy for about six months. The most recent genotype shows a bunch of mutations, okay? There's this thing called the M41L, K103N, which we just talked about, which is uh, Favrin's related, um, uh, probably ornaviropine, Y181C, M184V, L210W, and L215Y. The ones I put in red are specific to nukes, to NRTIs. The other ones remaining in black are NNRTI mutations. Okay, and then there are a few protease mutations as well. I'm focusing on the NRTIs. So what's the significance of those mutations? 41L, that 184, 210. Putting all this together, what, what, what do you think the significance? Who wants to take that on? What do they think about? Yes. Okay, so let, let her say that with the microphone if they're recording. That, that is exactly right. So, uh, you know. All the nukes are gone. <laughs> the, the, all the nukes are gone. That is probably the best way of saying it. I mean, this is not a good situation. You may be able to cobble a little bit of activity from the nukes, but I want to point out that this is a bad situation. Now, what are the 41, the 210, the 215 called? What are those called? TAMs. Good. So those are thymidine analog mutations. And, and just briefly, um, these are the, the, the six TAMs, and I think you know most of you are, are, have probably heard about all these TAMs. There are two different TAM pathways. It's not critical except to say there's a little bit of subtlety when you're in deep, deep salvage and you're looking and you're desperate for cobbling something together. Um, when you're down the TAM pathway that's the TAM1 pathway, it's probably even higher level of resistance than going down that TAM2 pathway. Uh, my advice, though, is to plug all these numbers in the Stanford database and, and because these are the TAMs are like the light bulb. They're, um, they're, they're, the, they're the dimmer in this analogy, where one TAM, you turn the notch down a little bit to tenofovir. Two TAMs, you're turning it down more. Three TAMs, you're really starting to get the room dim or almost dark. 
So think about it that way. The more TAMs you get, the more you're locking out your, your drugs like tenofovir and, and stavudine. So th this is a visual that, that clearly should show you. When you get three TAMs on board and a 184V, exactly as she said, you really have lost this class. So when you see this kind of pattern, the take-home point clinically is when you're constructing a new regimen, you cannot rely on the new class. You've got to dig deep in all your other classes. This is where you do a tropism assay. You know, if you don't have, you know, dolutegravir and darunavir and, you know, and ropivirine that you can use three new drugs or whatever. If you're really down to, you're, you're scrapping to find some other class, you know, this may be where you're looking at, at trying to find something else. Uh, it could even be investigational, like the case that Dr. Aaron presented, that is, it, it, depending on how bad it is. But that's the concept. Multiple TAMs are very bad. And, and, and for those of you who practice an era where we were you, you were using AZT and D4T, we used to see a lot of this. Um, and, and then if you plug all these in the Stanford database, notice those numbers are all really high. Uh, if you had to use something, tenofovir would be the best. Um, back to the question about TAF, it'll be interesting to see with these sort of multiple TAMs because of the very high intracellular levels of TAF, could they possibly have a little bit more activity? We don't know. We really don't know, and so that, that's something to look out for, hopefully, from, from some research studies coming down the road. Okay, so the take-home point for these TAMs are uh, enter them in the Stanford database. Don't try and remember all, you know, two TAMs, that, because it depends on what the combinations and the pathway and the significance of it. Um, one of the other things is, and it's back to this point, almost always if a person developed multiple TAMs, they had a 184 to begin with. So... You have to remember that, that if, if you see multiple TAMs, assume that the 184 was there. And they, they've shown that in multiple studies. The 184 precedes it. Um, and again, if you've got some TAMs on board, your tenofovir TAF is probably your best drug. But, but again, you can't depend on this, and you've got to go outside the class. Great. So if we get the microphone over to you, that'd be great. I'm just wondering if the Stanford database will give you in the commentary, if you plug in multiple TAMs, it will, it will highlight that you should assume there's an M184V present? Um, I don't think do it's, okay, so I don't think the Stanford database actually says that um, in the database, but, but I think if you talk to, go back and look at the original studies and you look at when they've done these, I think it's really clear that you, you have to assume that when you have multiple TAMs. Um, from the, the, and there's actually multiple studies that have looked at this and shown that the 184 precedes the TAM mutations um, in the pathways. But what, what, and I'm glad you brought this point up, though. The Stanford database, though, does give you, so I'm showing you the numbers. Above the numbers where you see them, it actually really says sensitive, low-level resistance, high-level resistance. So it, it actually gives you a nice interpretation with all that. In addition, it gives you often a little details about that specific mutation as well, too. Um, and I don't remember it saying anything about the 184 in that situation. But often, for example, you'll see some commentary like the 184i, um, if you plug that in, it'll make that comment about this may be seen with the 138 and may cause enhanced ropivirine resistance. So they have some nice little teaching points on it as well. Yes? I was a little confused in one of the talks earlier because this guy, for example, his genotype was done on wild type. He was not on meds at the time. So I would assume he actually has many more mutations yeah. than we're seeing. Yeah. So could you talk about that a little bit, please? So, so he's asking the question about, you know, what are you actually trying to assume when you see these types of genotypes? Um, 
So again, the, the ones that I think, it, clearly anything that you see there is incredibly valuable. But what you don't see, your point is, is really well taken. You cannot assume it wasn't there. And, and the most common time that that comes up is with the 184 mutation. That's the one where a lot of people, they don't see it, and they assume it wasn't there. So um, any time that you can dig deep and go back to old charts, that, that is in, get an old genotype, that is clearly the most valuable thing you can do in the world. A chart biopsy is the most valuable thing. And if you saw the mutation five years ago on a genotype, you have to assume that that is relevant today. So the fact that if you do a genotype today and you don't see a bunch of protease mutations, but you saw it five years ago on a genotype, you take everything. It's like a passport of travel that someone's been. Everywhere they've traveled counts, and it all gets lumped together into a sum when you go to make that final decision about what, what to do. Um, but the, the, some of the mutations, um, you know, for example, the ones that I typically assume the most on is the 184V. The protease are really hard to interpret. And to know. I don't know if you want to, Donna, if you've had any sort of pearls of what you do with these. I, I typically, the protease are, are, can be really, some of them get transmitted, some of them hang on, some of them have fitness benefits, some of them don't. So, yes, and I don't know if you, you know, maybe you can comment for Donna's. Yes. Yeah, so that's actually an interesting point. So he's raising the point, if you have someone, especially if you do it short term, um, could you put someone back on a regimen, especially if somebody comes in, no history, and they may say, I did fine on blah, 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 blah regimen. And you're like, I'm not sure. You put them back on it, and then uh, a month in or six weeks in, do a genotype and look at So you basically you're selecting out the pressure. If you don't really know what's going on and you're not confident about your options, I think that's a very reasonable strategy. If you have someone that was seen years ago and you know that you can put them on a nice modern regimen of dolutegravir and darunavir and just go at it with a new regimen, you, you know they never saw an integrase, you know they never saw uh, you know, a protease inhibitor, for example, I would do that. But I think your point's well taken. I've actually done that in my practice some too. Donna, yes. And that would be the spot where I would consider a phenotype. I don't do yeah. that very often. But these guys, if yep. they do show up, they're terribly difficult. And it gives you a chance then to kind of parse out if there's something left. Right. So a phenotype, and, and some people even have done archive genotypes in this, trying to look for proviral DNA in this situation. This has come up, especially in somebody who transfers to your practice. They're undetectable. They're on this massive regimen, that, a lot of toxic drugs, and you're trying to switch them to a more modern regimen. This has come up in our echo sessions a number of times. Of That might be a point where you do an archive genotype. And again, kind of as, uh, as, as a as was stated several times yesterday, if you see it on the archive genotype, uh, it's very helpful. If you don't see it, you, you can't be certain that there wasn't a resistance that was there in the past. Yes, somebody. Just a quick question for the M184V alone, yes. um, which is from previous. Uh, is there any benefit to keeping tenofovir, abacavir, and lenivudine? Because I've seen providers from the past keep all three on board. Um, so the question is, is there any benefit above and beyond keeping, uh, adding abacavir into tenofovir and emtricitabine if you have a 184? Yes, abacavir has some partial activity. So as long as you had the tenofovir on board and you weren't doing abacavir instead of tenofovir, however, I would say that in the, we used to do that a lot in the past before we had the integrase class and we're scraping, trying to try and point two, point three viral load reduction from any drug. I think in the modern era, the number of people doing that triple tenofovir, lamivudine, 
or, or in tricytabine and abacavir is very uncommon now because we tend to get so much more out of another drug and cost and everything. So I think the benefit is very small, and I would only consider doing that if I was really scraping the barrel for any possible antiviral impact. But it's not antagonistic. What we do know from the past is if you put people on that regimen by itself, tenofovir, lamivudine, and abacavir, anybody know what mutation you're going to be breeding out from that? K65R, that's right. That's where we saw a lot of K65R when those studies were done. Okay, so here's a, here's a two, now we're moving on to some couple non-nuke questions. Two, two patients that we saw in a clinic in an afternoon. First, first one was a 31-year-old man who's taking tenofovir, emtricitabine, efavirenz, viral loads, 976, 1645, a genotype's ordered. The next patient, 26-year-old woman taking tenofovir, DF, emtricitabine, ropivirine, um, and a genotype is ordered. Okay, so we briefly touched on this, but just to reiterate and hit this home, what would we expect to find for the genotype for patient one? Who wants to raise their hand and take a shot at that? Somebody who hasn't maybe responded yet. Okay, great. So he said a 103 for patient one. Okay, so 103. And would you expect a 184? Yeah, that, I think that's what he went. Yeah, maybe, maybe. We don't know for sure, but, but possibly. Okay, what about patient two? Anybody know what we would expect with that? E138, that's right. So let me just show you the sig. These are, the again, because going through the common scenarios that you see in clinical practice, when you put people on non-nukes nowadays, you're, most people aren't starting on efavirenz or starting on ropivirine, but I want to briefly go through. So we know from the ECHO and the THRIVE study, which was essentially head-to-head ropivirine versus efavirenz, large phase three study, we know what resistance mutations people get. And this is what the product, what, what it looked like. So when people failed efavirenz, 73% of them had a K103N. So that's, that's pretty predictable. And interestingly, when they checked these out, about two-thirds also had a 184V. So you're pretty likely to see a 184V as well. Notice the real pivoting column. Just as he said very astutely, the E138K is the signature mutation with ropivirine. So if you have somebody on, you know, TAF, FTC, ropivirine, or tenofovir, FTC, ropivirine, that's a mutation you'll likely see. But notice the bottom one is the M184I, and that's the dominant nuke mutation that you see when people break through on that. And there's something about patients that are on ropivirine that that 184I hangs around and it, it, it actually, the virus really gets a big benefit out of having both of those hanging out together because it increases the level of resistance. So this is, this is again, visually. Now, the question then is, what, is the, what, what impact does the K103N have on other drugs? So who wants to raise your hand and say, what is K103N going to do to ropivirine? Yes, go ahead, go ahead. Nothing, right. Okay, what's it going to do to etrovirine? Nothing. That's right. Okay. So notice that with, if you do fail efavirenz, that was the one nice thing about efavirenz is that it knocks out nevirapine, but who really cares? Nobody uses nevirapine anymore. But, but notice that etrovirine and ropivirine remain really relatively intact. That is important for you in your practice. If you were seeing somebody and they failed an efavirenz-based regimen years ago, and, and you're now you're scrolling back to try and find a new regimen for them at some later point, you're kind of wondering, wow, I don't have any drugs in the class. And then you go, oh, they had a K103N. Don't forget, you could probably use ropivirine or etrovirine in constructing a salvage regimen for that patient, okay? So, so just hearing that somebody failed 
a non-nuke in the past doesn't mean that whole class is gone. It depends on what happened. If they failed, had a K103N, uh, you're, you're probably going to be in good shape with ropivirine or etrovirine. I will make one point. So the efavirenz the mutation, the K103N is like a light switch on or off. But if you, if you keep the drug on board, you basically start ruining other, you develop more and more mutations. So once the light switch goes off, you want to get them off of efavirenz as quick as possible. And I think mo most everybody knows that. But you will accumulate more mutations that could then start to impact ropivirine or etrovirine. Okay, now, so let's talk about what do you practically do. Let, let's say you have somebody in your practice and they did fail, uh, you know, quote a tripla, you know, tenofovir, emtricitabine, efavirenz, and their genotype is 184V and a K103N, which is the most common genotype to see in that failure. What would you feel comfortable with salvage regimen? So how about number one, TAF, imtritocytabine, cobacistat, darunavir. Um, so boosted PI, TAF, imtricytabine plus dolutegravir, or TAF, imtricytabine plus cobacistat, darunavir, and dolutegravir. So kind of different levels of, you know, boosted PI, integrase, dolutegravir, or the integrase and the boosted PI? Anybody want to take a shot and say what they would do? And I, I wouldn't say there's a right answer here. It would just be interesting if anybody wants to gender a, a, or give an opinion on what they would do. Yes? Okay. I would, I would do three. Get, get two good agents in there because you don't have two good agents in one or two. Okay. And then how about in the back? Somebody's got it. Yes. She's got her hand up back here too. Yeah. This comes up all the time in clinical practice. Um, I think we have enough data that one will work. Um, and um, I believe I have actually a couple of patients that do actually work. And I would think that three is overkill at this point when you only have those uh, mutations. So I think uh, all of these are correct responses, and the, there isn't a set recommendation in the DHHS guidelines about what to do with this. And I could say that you could argue both points. I will say that there has been data with boosted PIs with only a 184 mutation, where boosted PIs in general look very good. It's not 100% reliable, but in general, the response is good. The point I would make with this is that this probably, this is a, came up in the panel again yesterday. Somebody said, yeah, probably would work, but we just don't have enough data. I wouldn't do dolutegravir in as sort of holding down the fort in this situation as a really strong anchor drug. We may see that someday that dolutegravir has a high enough genetic bear resistance that it will be able to maintain. This is the safest, and this is one that you would have, I think, two drugs with a very high genetic barrier resistance and a person who's already failed a regimen. But I would argue that either one or three would probably be appropriate in this situation. Personally, I would, I'm not ready to use number two yet in this situation. Yes? Okay, so hold on a second. So we're going to come back to that. So he made a point that the darunavir would be twice a day, and I'll come back to that. So I promise I'm coming back to the darunavir and the dosing on that because this is a, a, t a point on the PIs when we get to that. Any other questions on that? And if for some reason we're near the end and I haven't made that point, remind me to come back to the darunavir. So, so again, there's a lot of art to this. This comes up as a common, um, and I, the point I would make is that we're not quite ready for dolutegravir to be used 
uh, as as essentially in in this situation. You know, someday they may show that you know the, they, they talked about the study with Dalitegavir three TC looking very very good, but those were people who didn't have three TC resistance. So that's a different situation. Okay, all right. So let me go ahead and go on here. All right. So how about this situation? Um, okay. Same one. Sorry. Let me move forward. Okay, so now I just wanted to make, oh, okay, I know, I wanted to make the point about the real pivoting. So circling back to the real pivoting, which was the second case. So notice what the 138 does with real pivoting. It's a bigger impact mutation. So just remember this. If you've had patients who failed, you know, TAF, you know, emtricitabine real pivoting or tenofovir emtricitabine real pivoting, you likely then have lost something if you're trying to go to another drug in the class like etrovirine. You've lost a little bit of activity with etrovirine, Okay. And now if you add in that 184i mutation, it has a really big impact on real pivoting. I don't know if somebody maybe hit the lights back soon. Okay, no problem. And this is just showing you what the Stanford shows on this. And, that, and let me go to the last case on the non-nukes. Okay, now we got too dark. Oh. Hold on, hold on. Okay, get the Goldilocks thing here just right here. Okay, let me just go ahead and read this one. 46-year-old man is seen in the clinic for evaluation of a salvage Anti, there we go. That's getting close. Thank you. Salvage antiretroviral therapy regimen. He has extensive treatment history with multiple episodes of virologic failure. That's good. A deep salvage regimen is being considered and uh, that includes etrovirin. So you're considering using etrovirin in this situation. The most recent HIV genotype resistance shows multi-drug class resistance, including the following NNRTI-related mutations, L100I, K101E, K103N and G190S. So you probably don't know this off the top of your head, but anybody want to just say how, how good do they think etrovirin is going to be here? Partial sensitivity. Partial sensitivity, yep. That's probably about right. So, you know, the thing to do if you get etrovirin is a dimmer drug, okay? Etrovirin is not a light switch on or off drug. Think of etrovirin as a dimmer drug. And these are the mutations with etrovirin that were shown in the Duet 1 and 2 studies that actually have an impact. They scored them. And, and the good news is, again, in your clinical practice now, before we had really all of this in the Stanford database and, and we were using that routinely, you know, we tried to sit and we'd score these and we'd try and figure out. But nowadays, you just plug the mutations in the Stanford database, and they're really going to tell you sort of what it looks like for etrovirin, which is what I did. So you plug this in, and it lets you know those mutations that efavirenz is completely out, Etrovirin is a 60 score, which is not good. So with that many mutations, the best you're going to get is partial activity. And even there, you really probably wouldn't bank on etrovirin with those mutations that are there. Okay? So clearly, you're not going to get major activity in that setting. But again, the take-home point, again, do, you know, if you see a K103N, you don't need to you know, go to Stanford database to tell you if Favarin's is gone. But you see a bunch of mutations with etrovirin, Plug them in and look at them again. Dimmer, dimmer drug, dimmer mutations. Okay, now let's look a little bit with the integrase inhibitors. Patient on tenofovir DF, emtricitabine, and raltegavir develops virologic failure with a viral load of 1,644. Baseline genotype, no mutations. Four months, late, four months before this, he had an undetectable viral load. Okay, um, and let me actually then say, what type of resistance test would you order here? An integrase, okay? So 
One point I want to make for all practitioners is if you go to the order sheet and you just order a genotype, a, typically, unless your clinic is different than most other ones, you're not going to get an integrase genotype. You're going to get RT and you're going to get protease, which is going to tell you a lot about resistance with your nukes, your non-nukes, and your protease inhibitors. It's going to tell you nothing about integrase resistance. So to order integrase resistance, you need to order as a separate test, at least now, until some company um, has this as, as, a, as a one unified. You can, through monogram, get uh, an, an overall one, but it's a different box you need to check and order specifically for a combined. Uh, it is expensive, so when you add on the integrase, <laughs> back to the cost issue, it's a big deal when you add on, and you're basically adding on like another full resistance profile. Now, would you want to do an integrase phenotype or genotype? Genotype in this situation, for sure. Donna mentioned something earlier about phenotype. And the situation where phenotype is most useful are two situations. If you have somebody, especially with protease inhibitor resistance and multiple protease mutations, uh, sometimes a phenotype can be really helpful. The same thing with the nuke drugs as well, too. And it, 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 think of dimmer drugs as the one where you're most likely going to get useful information from a phenotype. But always get a genotype because it's history. You don't, you, you're going to record history. A phenotype doesn't record the history of the mutations. It just tells you, are your drugs going to work? So always get a genotype to record your history of where you're at at that time with any mutations available. Now, so before we get it back, would you expect that we would get a good response if we were to switch to an Elvategravir-based regimen? Okay, right, okay. That's right. What about dolutegravir? Probably maybe is exactly the right response. That's great. Exactly. So just kind of running through this, there are, um, think of dolutegravir is a, is a very interesting drug um, in that it has a very high genetic barrier resistance. And, and I'll come back to sort of what we know about the pathways of these integrase inhibitors. So raltegravir, there are three major pathways, but the one that's clearly we, we, you know, the, the two that are the most dominant are the 155 and the 148 pathway. The, of those two, which one is worse for dolutegravir? Anybody know? If you had to have a patient go down one of those pathways, you'd rather them go down this pathway. This pathway is often a harbinger of bad things for, for dolutegravir. So going down that pathway um, is, can be very bad. So the, the 143 pathway is there. That's the third pathway, but not very common. So contrast this then with the pathways with elvategravir. You can see are similar, the first two, but notice the dominant pathway for elvategravir is this E92Q pathway. That's the dominant pathway with elvategravir. So the take-home point with this is, is I'll show you a graph um, in a second showing you cross-resistance. But Here's an interesting phenomenon with dolutegravir. So everybody's probably heard about this. is actually the single study. Um, this is the one where, and this was mentioned several times yesterday and today, that uh, abacavir, lamivudine, dolutegravir outperformed the efavirenz-based regimen. It was the first study that ever showed anything beat efavirenz, and it clearly beat it in this study. The dolutegravir virologic suppression is in blue. The efavirenz-based arm is in this sort of uh, orange color. Okay, but here's the thing. In this study, and all the patients that they saw, and the dolutegravir, abacavir, 3TC, there was not a single person who failed that had a dolutegravir mutation. 
So to the best of my knowledge, and somebody mentioned this yesterday as well too, I have yet to see a single study or single report of a person who started on antiretroviral therapy with no integrase resistance who, who developed dolutegravir mutations. Now, if you already have raltegravir mutations or elvategravir, yes, you're the, 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 you know, the trouble has started, and you can continue down that pathway of further trouble and develop dolutegravir mutations. But interestingly, we don't really know anything about dolutegravir pathways of mutations because you don't, there's not any kind of cumulative data. Yes? Hold on a second. He's coming. He's got it. I have one rep who is a PharmD who thinks a lot about all these things, and he happens to sell a boosted protease inhibitor. Mm -hmm. And he, he hates this term of uh, higher barrier to resistance in dolutegravir versus anything else. His position is, <clears throat> and I just wanted your take, is that the way studies are done, the studies will probably never show that because you don't keep people on the, the regimen long enough. The minute you find it, you're, you're monitoring them very short intervals, you yeah. find it very early, that in the real world, you're going to see this because you're not finding it that yeah. early, you're not taking people off of the yeah. precipitating drugs as quickly. What do you think of that? So I guess my feeling about it is, is that the backbone that this was with Dolutegravir with the Bacavir and, and, and Lamivudine, which I would consider a low barrier backbone. They just didn't see it in the initial people who broke through. So I think the point's well taken in studies. You tend to not have prolonged resistance, and, and that can definitely in clinical practice. But Mark Weinberg, who's this antiretroviral expert from Canada in this resistance, has written several editorials about that in clinical practice and reports they have not seen they're, they have not seen anybody report a case of it. I don't see anybody in their own practice seeing this that they've had. Clearly, where you start somebody, you do a baseline integrase. They don't have integrase. They put on dolutegravir, and they break through with a dolutegravir mutation. So his point could be true, but so far, no one has reported one of these. And so I think there's something to dolutegravir having a higher genetic barrier resistance. I really do. I don't think elvategravir has a low genetic barrier resistance. I think raltegravir is probably a, a little bit lower, but elvategravir, because it's boosted, is probably a reasonable genetic barrier resistance. But I, my own biases, and I think most experts who are constructing salvage regimens really like using dolutegravir in salvage over like raltegravir if you have a choice. Um, and, and probably elvategravir if you have a choice as well too. But the typical drug rep might be yes. in their pharmacy lab somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I mean, the, the, the point of studies don't, but, but you know, these other studies like I just showed you, when I showed you the ECHO and the Thrive, they had no problem showing an N138 an E138K and a, and a K103N, and that study in 70-plus percent of patients and 184 mutations in them. And, and in this study, they saw 184 mutations in these patients. But So, you know, it, the jury's sort of out what we're going to see long-term in clinical practice, but I really, truly think dolutegravir has a high genetic barrier resistance. Whether or not it's as high as boosted darunavir, I don't think we know. Boosted darunavir is the drug that right now that we had put at the top of the list in terms of, of uh, you know, overall barrier right now that we know of. Yes? Are, you, are, are there reports at all of transmitted integrase inhibitor resistance? There, there are reports of transmitted integrase resistance, but they're very uncommon. There are transmitted resistance cases, but they're uncommon. 
and I've actually seen one in our practice, but they're uncommon. Um, and so this came up with a discussion about should you do a, a baseline integrase resistance test in people before you start therapy. And I never have because I've never Right, seen and the consensus from the panel yesterday was most people said they wouldn't do that, and that's what we're doing. Is anybody routinely doing an integrase as part of that initial uh, genotype? Yes, somebody's doing it back here. Do you want to comment on that? Or were you just going to make a different comment? No, I was going to comment that we, uh, we actually do uh, integrase uh, as baseline for all our patients. Yeah. And we actually have one naive patient that we found yep. um, an integrase resistance. And yep. so I understand that um, it's not a transmitted resistance. But our argument, I think, in our clinic is that if you don't have the data, at least to really know. Yeah. Um, and that's why we're doing it. So the other argument we heard yesterday from Kevin Carmichael, which I thought was an interesting approach that you might think about, is that he said if a patient, they did a genotype and they found other mutations, that would prompt them to go on and do an integrase. In other words, where there's smoke, there's fire. So the question is, what's the likelihood that you would find, and I, I wouldn't know for sure, but I would bet the patient you had with integrase had other mutations as well. Is that right? Or is it nothing, just an integrase? Um, I believe there is, um, I can't remember one, because it's one, one of my partner's patients, and yeah. so it was a surprise, but it, I so, I think it's not a major new. I, I, I want to say it's probably a 184 and, and not. Yeah. 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 So I think I think that's one strategy. Some people have said is if you find multiple other muta or other mutations that may lead you to think more about doing a baseline. Uh, but but there's clearly no recommendation to do that now. I'm not advocating that. <clears throat> you could hear from the panel the other day there was a discrepant opinion on that. Yes. We get it because I think our lab was able to negotiate. That's good. A $50. It was only $50 more. Than oh, so if I could do it for $50 more, his point was if you know, they're only doing it 50 I would do it if in that case. Uh, I think a lot of places it's four or $500 more, but that's actually great that you negotiated that. Yes? I was just going to say it may not be as much an issue now, but I wouldn't necessarily underscore the sort of local practice patterns yes. that are happening in terms of yes. you know, how much our providers actually Exactly. So, so her point is, you know, local practice patterns should also influence you. The other thing is that we know from experience that when a drug starts to be dominantly used, there's often a gap of four to five to six years before the transmitted resistance starts to occur. So we saw that with, you know, efavirenz and other drugs that, you know, the first year or two, uh, we didn't really worry about transmitted drug, but after the drug started to be using in a wide percentage. So I, I would say stay tuned in that. Right now, from a widespread basis, most people are not doing it, but that could change um, based on sort of what we're seeing downstream. Yes? Because the DHH guidelines didn't change it. They said still we don't have to do Correct. That. That's right. So Donna's making the point that it's, it's not recommended on a routine basis. Okay. So now this point of this graph is raltegravir and elvitegravir, um, and these are susceptibilities, and it's just showing you with these common mutations, 155, 148, uh, and the 143, that these are the raltegravir mutations. So in other words, if you get raltegravir resistance, Looking at that graph, you could go, Elvitegravir looks pretty similar to Raltegravir to me there, right? I mean, that's, that's pretty similar. So in general, maybe with the 143, we saw that that wasn't a pathway for Elvitegravir. Maybe you could use Elvitegravir if you had a 143, but the common mutations in Raltegravir pathway, 155 and 148, in general, that means Elvitegravir is probably gone in that situation, okay? So that, that basically that was the response people have. But that's the data that backs that up. So what do we know about dolutegravir? And I'll briefly just show you this. I think most people have probably seen this. This is called the Viking 3 study. And they looked at this exact issue of patients who are antiretroviral experienced. 
they were resistant to either raltegravir or elvitegravir, and then they looked at um, sort of their responses to, to dolutegravir in this setting. Um, and these were dolutegravir 50 milligrams twice a day. And so the point of this is that it really depends on the specifics of it. So if you have a patient who failed raltegravir or elvitegravir, there isn't a blanket answer that dolutegravir will work or will not work. And I was very pleased to see some of the responses. People said maybe, maybe not, probably. That's exactly right because it depends on it. What you do know is that if you get this Q148, it's really the bad news mutation for dolutegravir. If you get that and you dim down with two more mutations, you've now dimmed down dolutegravir. So think of dolutegravir as a dimmer drug and that one mutation is not going to completely knock it out. There's not a single mutation that knocks out dolutegravir. But importantly, the 148, you start dialing in more mutations with the 148, you really start to lose the effect. So that's the concept with that, with dolutegravir. And then I just asked a question here, which we really just addressed is, um, you know, would you use 50 milligrams of dolutegravir or once a day or twice a day? So general, if they have... This is so vaguely defined in the package insert um, and in, in any guideline anywhere. So if you actually try and tease this out, but in general the concept is if you, especially if you see the 148 mutation, I would almost uniformly use a 50 milligrams twice a day. Um, but there are, like with 155H, a lot of those patients in the study, uh, that, uh, you know, probably a lot of the 155 could get by with once a day. But the 148, for sure, um, you should use twice a day. Okay, so here's just a couple concepts to leave you with with the integrase inhibitors. Raltegravir and elvitegravir have a low to medium genetic barrier resistance. Elvitegravir probably more in the medium range. Dolutegravir appears to have a high genetic barrier resistance. Um, major cross resistance with raltegravir and elvitegravir. Dolutegravir is likely effective in early virologic failure. If you have a patient and they're on raltegravir and you keep them on it for months and months and months failing, that's bad news. That's when you lose dolutegravir. Um, and same thing if you, you know, leave a failing patient on efavirenz for months and months and months and months. You likely use etrovirin. So I'm making some parallels here uh, about the classes. Avoid prolonged failure with either raltegravir or elvitegravir. And the last thing is that um, if you've had fire, prior integrase failure in general, you probably need your twice-a-day dolutegravir in that setting. May I ask an, uh, actually a segue to the PI question yes. with dolutegravir? Um, I've seen some conflicting stuff, including in uh, the, um, uh, the last guideline that was just published, the one that was in JAMA, uh, involving dolutegravir and boosted protease, particularly darunavir, whether it needs to be double dose. Uh, the darunavir or the dolutegravir? The dolutegravir, whether um, you need to double that dose so or not. So, and actually, this was, this the, actually, this the question. Norvir. Yeah, so in general, you do not have to increase the dose of dolutegravir with the use of darunavir, whether or not you use darunavir once a day or twice a day. Dolutegravir can be used at a normal dose once a day with darunavir. Um, and Dave, I don't know if you're still here, you back that up, right? So we have our expert pharmacists here that we work with in our region. So yeah, so there, there's no, and this actually came up in the panel the other day, the, the same question came up and somebody answered that and said too, that you don't have to. Now I do want to segue in because I promised I would get back to the question. That's what, now I'm going to get to the darunavir. Now we'll get to the darunavir. Okay, so this is the question about darunavir. So a 51-year-old man's newly diagnosed with HIV, CD4 count 245, starts on TDF, FTC, 
atazanavir ritonavir, boosted PI. Baseline viral load was pretty high, 117,000. So they start to fail this because he started worrying about his eyes turning yellow and he started intermittently taking it and noticed his eyes didn't get yellow when he wasn't taking as much. That didn't work out so good. His viral load popped up to 2,055. So we ordered genotype and it only showed a 184V mutation. Does that make sense to people? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. That's exactly. So this is one thing. So don't don't worry if you have a patient on a boosted PI and you do a genotype and, and you only get a 184 back. You may go, well, why? Well, what's going on here? But with boosted PIs, the barrier that think of it, the, you know, links of a chain, and the link of the chain that breaks the quickest in a boosted PI is not going to be the boosted PI. It's going to be something else. It's going to be the NNRTI. Or it's going to be the 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 the, the, the nukes, especially 3TC or M trisitabine. That's what's going to break first. That's what you're going to see. Think of it as a dam breaking. That's the part of the dam that's going to break the quickest. Whereas the atazanavir is going to hold pretty strong there. And unless you continue on and let the viral load ramp up like this for months, you won't probably see protease mutations early. But if you just look at this and go, hey, no problem, no protease mutations, I can continue this forever, you will eventually start to break through and see some PI mutations probably. Because what you'll get next or a few mutations, you'll probably get tenofovir resistance next, and then after that, you may start to break through with some protease mutations. So if you see this pattern, that's very predictable. You caught early virologic failure probably, and you're fine. Now, so you do that, um, and, and then, so now I'm going to a couple questions. So would you, would you consider using an integrase, uh, if you're going to use it, would you order an integrase genotype at this point? No. Okay, this came up yesterday. I think the answer could be yes or no. The point that Joe Aaron made was that once you've already got resistance, the stakes are higher. Maybe consider it if you're doing it as a second or third line regimen because if you fail there and you're going to use an integrase inhibitor, you, the, the stakes are pretty high. I don't think there's a right answer to that. I'm just underscoring that I thought that was an interesting point. Personally for me, I would probably agree with what most people said. I probably wouldn't do it here. But if it was a deep salvage regimen and I was making the change and they'd never seen an integrase, I probably would because I would want to know that everything that I'm doing is, is working. Okay. So, there, yes. There is an archive DNA for integrase. Yes. Yes. What's that? Yeah, right. So it's not, I don't think it's. Yeah, so I don't, I don't, that, for this person, that's right. There would not be, if a person acquired it earlier and they haven't been on it, you're exactly right. There wouldn't be any logic to do it in this person. That's actually a really good point. So if it depends on the error and when the person sort of has been around and if they've ever been on integrase inhibitors before, but, but a person who, and, and that point actually came up again in the panels the other day, that if somebody was seen in your practice and they, you know, they acquired virus and they were treated back in the 1980s, you know, and you're looking to try and figure out what's going on, doing an integrase resistance and that person is not going to have any yield. Yes? Quick question. Can you get sexually transmitted viral resistance? I mean, do you have to worry? Let's say this person had a, a partner yeah. also with HIV great on point. a so, failing yes, integrase regimen. Yes, great point. Could so, you, do you, good. So could somebody get super infection and get sexually transmitted drug-resistant virus? The answer to that is yes. Um, and that's always considered sort of lower likelihood and probability, but it's a great point. That could happen. So that, that's kind of that it's unlikely, but that could happen. Back to this and just to kind of wrap up a couple key points here. So when you look at the protease inhibitor studies, when they do the studies, almost always people break through with a 184. And, and PI mutations at the early therapy are very unlikely, whereas the NNRTI 
based regimens, when you break through, you see that the NNRTI mutations pop up real quickly. So now let me get to the darunavir question. Okay, so we decide, you know, okay, we're going to use darunavir in this person's regimen. So just to clarify, they're on adazanavir, ritonavir, TDF, FTC. The only thing on the genotype that was seen was the 184V that was done while they're taking therapy. So darunavir, can we use once daily or do we need to go twice daily? Okay, so here are different ones. The answer is once. So here is, here is the study that will tell us. So you know for sure in your practice you've got the data to back this up. This is called the ODIN study, and it was very clearly looked at the issue of if you're using darunavir as a second-line agent, can you do it in somebody who's failed antiretroviral therapy and give it once a day, the top um, blue arm, 800 once a day, versus the 600 milligrams twice a day. This was a study that caused the manufacturing of the 800 milligram tablet. Um, and then that, it started being used in, as initial therapy as well too. So these were people who were treatment experienced. They could actually be PI experienced. 46% um, were, were naive, but more than 50% had already seen a PI, just like the patient I presented. But they could not have a darunavir-associated mutation. So in your practice, if you're making a decision point, do I do darunavir once a day or twice a day? It's are there any darunavir-associated mutations? And the way to do that is plug them in your Stanford database and just look. Do any of those pop up as darunavir mutations? There's 11. They're called uh, uh, DRAMs, or darunavir-associated mutations, and there's 11 of them. And this is what they found in this study. Looking in terms of virologic response once a day versus twice a day, there's absolutely no difference. No difference between once a day darunavir and twice a day darunavir, okay? So bottom line is we frequently use boosted darunavir for salvage therapy. This study was done with ritonavir-boosted darunavir. So do we think that it's probably the same thing with, with you know, cobacistat plus darunavir? You know, it's only a pharmacological booster uh, that's the effect here. So I personally feel comfortable saying once a day, you know, cobacistat darunavir would be the same issue here as ritonavir darunavir. I don't know. Would you agree with that? Or would you feel okay? Any, anybody disagree with that? I mean, they're, they're just in the date, same data, but I think everyone that I know that I've ever talked to about this says, yes, I feel comfortable with that. Yes. And I believe that we, it's then recommended that you use ritonavir 100 milligrams BID. Correct. Why? Um, because for the pharmacology, so for example, if you give the second dose in the day unboosted, the ritonavir half-life is short enough that you'll get that second dose of darunavir at an inadequate level. Is that the correct response? Okay. So, so you really need it. With each dose of darunavir, you, you need it at that time. Okay. So you don't want that, that second dose hanging out unboosted, and the levels during that time period will go down too rapidly. Thank you. Yep. Okay. Now, if, if people want to hang around, if anybody needs to leave, no problem at all. If you want to take... Three or four more minutes, I want to go over one concept with the, with the, with the entry inhibitor um, blocker, specifically the CCR5 co-receptor blocker, Maraviroc, and explain conceptually, if you ever have to deal with this, what you want to think about with resistance with Maraviroc. Okay, just to remind everybody, when we're talking about using Maraviroc, we want to make sure we're using it in the right patients. So as you know, the virus really goes through two major sort of pathways in entering the cell. It always binds to CD4. But then after it binds to CD4, it's either going to go through the CCR5 receptor 
or the CXCR4 receptor. The virus, if it's going through this receptor, we call it R5 virus. And that's what you're looking for on your test. Call R5 virus, or they may use the terminology CCR5 tropic. It just means that the virus is going down this pathway. It's using CCR5. If you have X4 virus, it's going through the co-receptor CXCR4, and you can have virus that can do both. Um, it's called dual tropic. It's like, think of it as an ambidextrous virus, left-handed, right-handed, ambidextrous. That's the ambidextrous virus. And you can have a mixture of right-handed and left-handed viruses floating around the bloodstream. You can have R5 and X4. If you're going to use Maraviroc, you only want 100% R5 virus floating around in that person. That's all you, you don't want to see any X4 virus because you will quickly, quickly select it out. So the so first thing is if you're thinking about using Maraviroc, I think we all know this, but you've you got to do a tropism assay. And when they do the tropism assay, the most common one is the monogram one where they do a phenotype special lab test, and they're going to tell you on the report, do you have pure R5 virus? That's what they're going to do. Now, the other way that some people are getting sophisticated and know how to test for tropism is an actual envelope genotype. So there is the, it, it, what determines this pathway of where the virus goes is a segment of the virus envelope. That's what determines it. So there is a sequence in that envelope that matches up to tell you do you have R5 or X4. So in the formal DHHS guidelines now, they say there is an option that you can do a specific test for tropism with a genotype. My holy grail that I would hope for someday would be we'd have one genotype we order, and it would be, you know, RT, protease, you'd get your integrase, and it would have this segment to let you know the tropism of the virus at the time, and it would all be one, you know, for a reasonable price. That's way too much to ask. So quick question, and then I'll just finish with this. A patient is on a salvage regimen that includes Maraviroc. Now the viral load on Maraviroc goes up to 3,455. Um, I'm sorry, they're, they're on a, pri a prior regimen. So I'm, actually, I, I, let me just ask you this. What are the possible mechanisms of resistance if they're on Maraviroc and they develop virologic breakthrough? There's two major things that can happen. Does anybody know what those are? Good. So the trophile could be insensitive, and especially the older ones that we used, that was common. So even the newer ones, they're not perfect. So what would you expect to see if you were, how would you figure that out? So let's say that was your hypothesis. Your hypothesis was this person didn't do well because the previous trophile wasn't good enough or I missed something. You repeat the trophile. Absolutely. That's great. That's exactly right. So it's not intuitive, but that's exactly what you have to do. If someone breaks through on Maraviroc, you redo the trophile, and then now it should be you know, low-hanging fruit that you should see it because if it's growing up enough to give a viral load of 3,000, you should have plenty of X4 virus floating around. And it, you're probably right, and it should probably be mixed virus or dual virus. Probably mixed virus is what your report will come back. Anybody know the other mechanism? This is a hard question. So this is the last sort of – yes, Probably, but I will say that I agree with you, but I will say that we've been shocked and occasionally we say, oh, go ahead and do a trophile assay because we don't have any other drugs to offer. And I've been shocked at sometimes people with lower CD4 counts on second and third regimens have had, um, and in the past I kind, of, I kind of said, I don't know if I trust this, but with the new 
very sensitive profile. And there's actually, for those of you who haven't seen it, there is a profile DNA that you can get, which is people with undetectable viral load. You can actually do a, a profile DNA and figure out their uh, status as well. Now, here's the last point. So just as he said, so the blue circles indicate that's the R5 virus. So the idea is that maybe you missed it. Just as he said, maybe you missed it initially. And there was that one X4 virus that was around and you missed it. Now you come in and you treat the person with Maraviroc, and gradually over time what you select out is predominantly this X4 virus. That's the most common reason why people would fail Maraviroc. But nowadays with the really sensitive profile assays in the genotype, there's another mechanism that's starting to be seen. So again, I mentioned that the, the business end of the virus, this is the virus coming down, landing on the cell, landing on the CCR5 receptor. The business end of the virus is this segment of the envelope um, of the GP120 um, that specifically interacts with, it actually moves like an amoeba down, and after the, C, after the CD4 binding, this moves down and binds into this region. So they're actually, the virus can outsmart the drug and develop a couple mutations that cause it to be able to move down and essentially still bind to the CCR5, even with Maraviroc sitting right there. So the two mechanisms are the virus changes its tropism and goes to X4. The second mechanism is the virus actually develops genetic mutations, kind of analogous like the RT mutations, the protease where you change the binding pocket and do these things. The idea here is that you make a genetic mutation. So even with the drug on board, even R5 virus, you haven't changed the X4. You continue to have R5 virus, and the virus essentially bypasses the, the, the blockade of the Maraviroc. So that's an advanced concept to leave on because I wanted to make sure I at least had one perhaps new thing for everybody in the audience. So let me go ahead and stop there. Thank you all for staying, and um, thank you for all the interaction and great questions that you have. Thank you.